This week's episode of the Slash Filmcast is brought to you by Casper. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash filmcast and using promo code filmcast. That's casper.com slash filmcast and using promo code filmcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me is... Devendra Hardwar. And just us today, Devendra. Jeff Kanata is not here. Now, we were really looking forward to uh, reviewing The Light Between Oceans, a very appropriate film for a new father. Uh, <laughs> Maybe with Jeff, not. <laughs> with Jeff yeah. Kanata. Uh, but Jeff Kanata is not here because he had a baby this weekend. So... Huge congratulations to Jeff, uh, and uh, we will miss him dearly. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever hear from him again. <laughs> when we do, he will. Uh, yeah, he will sound crazy with no sleep. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I can't wait for his next "What We've Been Watching" segment. It's gonna be great. <laughs> it will be crazy. But uh, yeah, so congratulations to Jeff Kanata, our dear friend, beloved co-host, and now new father. Uh, I don't know when Jeff will be back. He'll probably take a, a week or two off, but he has expressed that he wants to keep trucking with the Slash Film cast. He wants to keep going, and certainly he wants to receive his lumps uh, in the Summer Movie Wager follow-up episode that we will record this month. For some so, reason, you're really excited about that. I don't that know why day. I'm so excited about that episode. I just huh. feel like I really want to record that with all of you guys uh, who also entered the Summer Movie Wager with me. Yes. But anyway, uh, so today is going to be an abridged episode of the podcast. Uh, not going to be as long because we don't have Jeff here. Uh, find more episodes of our podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Today we're going to be doing a Slash Film Court segment as usual uh, and then moving on into a very brief what we've been watching before we get to our main review and that is a review of Derek C. and France's newest film, The Light Between Oceans, starring Michael Fassbender and Alicia Vikander. Now, this weekend was pretty rough, Devinder Hardwar, for mm-hmm. new films. Light Between Oceans made, I think, like $6 million. No films did particularly well. And, in fact, Morgan, the Jake Scott film, the sci-fi thriller uh, starring Kate Mara, performed disastrously. It was one of the worst uh, openings of all time for a movie that opened in over 2,000 theaters, uh, which is unfortunate because I don't think it was, it was deserving of that fate. Mm-hmm. But it's not like a horrible film. There's, I've certainly seen films that, that are like worse. It's like a VOD movie. That, yeah, that yeah. I mean, I think it would, it would be fine if you saw it on TV. You would enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I, I think part of, it, part of it was like their marketing team didn't do a good job of opening the movie. But part of it is just Labor Day is where – Movies go to die, pretty much, in terms Probably. of uh, opening box office grosses. Did, uh, did Morgan have a bigger, open, like a bigger, wider release than uh, Light Between Oceans? Because, uh, honestly, I had a little trouble finding it, even here in I New York. I think it might have, actually, from what yeah. I recall. Uh, Light Between Oceans, I think, was under 2,000 theaters, yeah, but I'm not yeah. 100% sure about that. Uh, but, yeah, Light Between Oceans did, respectably. Uh, Morgan made $2 million, $2.4 million uh, worldwide. <laughs> right now as we record this is a 3.8 million dollars so uh not doing too well to compare light between oceans is a film that made uh 5.9 million dollars at the box Mm -hmm. so it's not like 
doing gangbusters either. But, but at fewer uh, theaters, which is yeah, it's kind of um, interesting. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the uh, box office postmortem for uh, this weekend. But let's get to uh, slash film court this week. Firstly, I wanted to say you know we're still uh, looking for people who might want to help us with sound design or theme songs for slash film court and the slash filmcast. Got a few uh, bites. Uh, people. Twitter DMing me, people emailing us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Keep them coming. Um, we'll get back to you very soon. Anyway, uh, this email comes in from Zachary. Zachary from Boston, my old stomping grounds, writes in to the Slash Film Court, which is where we adjudicate movie dilemmas. Uh, here's one to consider, Slash Film Court. Today, my fiance and I went to see The NeverEnding Story at our local AMC theater as part of a Fathom event. We got there 15 minutes early as usual and found our seats. Then at the moment the movie was scheduled to begin, literally the minute the lights dimmed, a group consisting of two moms and their combined seven children came and sat in our row right next to us. The kids were all seven to nine years old and all boys. They were a complete nightmare. For the 20-minute slideshow of fun facts and trivia about the film, the 20-minute behind-the-scenes featurette about the making of the film, and the opening of the film itself, there were all versions of noise. Kids arguing about who had the popcorn, whining about someone hogging the M&Ms, running back and forth to pass drinks, leaning over the mini wall in front of us so they could gawk at the people in the row below us, turning to stand in their seats to look at all the people behind, and of course, the impotent attempts one of the moms took to quell the circus-like atmosphere. Shit you not, a mom told one kid to quit bothering the people in the row below and sit in his seat, and he simply ignored her and continued to watch them play some game on their phones. (laughs) This was during the pre-show featurette. About three minutes later, she had repeated her admonishment, adding, don't make me tell you again. I looked at my fiancé and bet him 20 bucks. She would. I won. Holding out hope that they would settle once the movie started, I held back from unleashing a tirade equal to that of Judge uh, Judy and Julia Sugarbaker and went to speak to the manager. I explained the situation, and she said it would be handled. When I returned, a staffer was already there talking to the group, and I overheard him saying to the microphone, there's no problem here, just some kids. He then left... And the debauchery continued to ensue. My fiance and I agreed if they kept this up once the movie started, we would leave. And we did. The talking, arguing about snacks, turning and moving in their seats, whining about who was sitting where continued. And worse, they interacted with the movie like it was a midnight showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show. They'd obviously seen the movie before and thought they were sitting in their living room. When kids act like fools in the middle of Target, I never mind. Who cares? I'm just trying to get a bottle of shampoo. Let your kid have a meltdown. It doesn't bother me. But in a theater, there's a certain level of decorum that must be met. At least, I believe. Similarly, you wouldn't take your moody toddler to a Michelin star elegant restaurant if they can't meet the public standard of behavior. Cinemas, theaters, opera houses, and other audience arenas where masses are focused on the events on screen or stage should have similar standards of behavior. And if you can't match said standard, choose another outing. So here is the dilemma. Do you ever admonish kids who are being disruptive in a theater? You've talked about dealing directly with adults, but what about adults with children? Do you talk to the kids directly or talk only to the adults about the kids? Again, that email comes from Zachary. Uh, now, Devinder Hardware, I think you have mm-hmm. a pretty strong opinion on how Zachary should have <laughs> behaved in this situation. I mean, it's uh, not, not a very strong opinion. It's just more like, uh, yeah, you're, you're going to see the never-ending story at an AMC theater, you know, probably... Uh, not late at night or anything, probably maybe a mid-morning uh, matinee or an afternoon matinee. And uh, having sat through a lot of those public screenings for kids' movies uh, for this show, I, I have to tell you, like that's, that's, that's just how it is. You kind of have to either deal with it or change your seats yeah, or no, something. No, no, like clear, there, there's to, nothing to complain about, unfortunately. To yeah. be clear, uh, we 
on the Sashum cast are uh, proponents of people upholding the utmost high uh, sure. decorum in films, right? Like, we don't think they should be talking. We don't think they should be texting or using your phone or anything like that. And uh, occasionally, uh, I think, Devinder, you've said, like, you've confronted people who have done stupid shit like this during yeah. movies. And not, not even in, like, an aggressive way. Like, there, were, there was one movie we, uh, we reviewed recently where a guy just fell asleep. In the middle of the theater and just started snoring like really – I think it was Bridge of Spies. Like he was just snoring over the dialogue and over the movie. So I just walked over, tapped and said, hey, uh, you're, you're snoring. And he didn't know. So he didn't get angry. He was just, oh, sorry. Yeah, that's yeah. all. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll, we'll do stuff like that and I think that's completely fine. Uh, I think the issue is that you have to expect that when you go see a children's film that people will bring children. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think that is the inherent contract you make when you go see a children's film. Uh, yeah. Now, I don't think that that necessarily applies to when you see like theater, uh, unless mm -hmm. it's specifically children's theater. The even that, even there, like big Broadway things, like Wicked, like you know, kid, kids will get into it in their own ways. I think the reason though is that like if kids are being too disruptive during a musical, that can actually impact yes uh, what is going on on stage. Mm -hmm. uh, like it, it can actually uh, affect the concentration of the actors on stage. Now you could just argue that well, in a movie theater, it affects your concentration. I guess I just feel like yeah, when you go see Kung Fu Panda, when you go see Pete's Dragon, you just have to expect there are going to be kids there. And you have to be able to absorb yeah. that cost. The madness. Uh, I mean, it's a, if it's really that bad, like at some point you can maybe say something to the parents or even just like a look at the parents and the kids and see what's happening. I, I don't know. Uh, but but it's, no, uh, you can't yeah. admonish children for you can't, for be, you can't like, admonish children. You basically can only say, hey, to the parents, like, hey, what's, you know, uh, can they settle down or something? But it's like you can barely even say that. I'm reminded of uh, one of Louis C.K.'s, uh, Louis C.K.'s recent uh, comedy specials. He's like, uh, you know, you can be mad at parents bringing kids to uh, to an airplane or something and be mad about like, oh, man, your flight's going to suck. But those parents have to live with those kids, you know, 24-7. That is that is their constant life of like screaming kids. So I also feel honestly when that happens and it has, I feel worse for the parents who have to manage the kids <laughs> in these situations. Like uh, that is flash forward ten or fifteen years to my future where I'm bringing my kids to the theater and I'm like, oh, this is gonna be. I am not looking forward to this at all. I will say there is one exception for mm -hmm. our uh, implicit policy about seeing children in a theater uh, in a during a kids movie, and that is. That if the movie is rated R, uh, <laughs> I think that Zachary is well within yeah. his rights to chide uh, the parent. Of, if it's not really a kids movie, then if it's yeah, not really if sure. it's rated R and they're bringing kids who are being disruptive, or they bring a baby into the theater, <laughs> uh, then you are well within your rights to give that parent a hard time. In my opinion, yeah, parents should not be bringing infants uh, or very small children into rated Sorry, R Jeff. films. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I think that is an exception to, to this policy. But mm -hmm. in general, if you're going to see the never-ending story, uh, then you just got to assume that uh, there are going to be kids there. Now, I'm, I'm a bit bummed out because Zachary says he, this is a Fathom event. So I assume yeah, – like yeah, Fathom a little more expensive. So it's probably yeah. a little more expensive. We probably paid a little bit extra and you know, was expecting something mm -hmm. uh, like a special experience. And Most theaters will give you a refund if you walk out and just like it's it's not it's too disruptive. Like this experience isn't good. At the very least, you could get a refund. Uh, so you may want to try that. I mean, yeah. if it was a fathom event of like Frankenstein or some opera thing, 
then I would be much more understanding of Zachary's position. But the never-ending story, eh, you just got to yeah. assume kids will be there. Because so. uh, some of the, those other Fathom events, they, they can get really expensive, right? Like closer to 50 bucks, I think, for, for like the bigger shows. But for this, I maybe a slight premium over a normal movie ticket. Well, uh, yeah. I think that is our ruling that basically, Zachary, uh, it's cool to leave, cool to even ask for a refund, yes. but don't be going after parents who have kids in, in, in kids' movies. Their lives are so much worse than you can <laughs> Their lives are beyond a level of suffering that you could comprehend, <laughs> sir. So. They bring the kids to the movies just, just for a break. <laughs> just for, just, just for-, for a respite from the yes. never-ending torment that they experience. Uh, and we say that knowing that our co-host just had a child. So Yes. That is the Slash Film Court. You can always keep those emails coming in to slashfilmcast at gmail.com, and we shall try and rule on your movie dilemmas on a weekly basis. Uh, and, uh, yeah, feel free to just keep those emails coming in. Let's move on to what we've been watching this week. I want to talk about a couple things I've been watching, Devinder Hardwar. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw this movie called Don't Think Twice, the newest film written and directed by Mike Birbiglia. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. When a member of, popular, of a popular New York City improv troupe gets a huge break, the rest of the group, all best friends, start to realize that not everyone is going to make it after all. Uh, and again, writer-director Mike Birbiglia, he directed Sleepwalk With Me. What did you think of that film, Devendra? I know you saw that, right? Oh, I like that. I'm a, I'm a big fan of him because uh, that was a story, I think, on This American Life, right, a couple years ago. And that, that kind of just exploded into, into this whole thing. Like, there was a book, and then, yeah, then a movie. So I like Mike, Bir- Mike Birbiglia and everything he's been doing. Uh, I thought uh, Sleepwalk With Me was okay. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought it was basically like kind of a film version of uh, This American Life uh, episode, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but uh, I didn't find it like particularly impressive from a, a filmmaking right, perspective right. or anything. But uh, Don't Think Twice, I think, is just a significant evolution in terms of Birbiglia's nice. uh, both like the dialogue and also uh, just the direction, like just literally camera techniques, set design, mm-hmm. like all the things or, or you know, uh, art direction, like all the things that would go into uh, a movie. Uh, this I feel like is a significant evolution, and I I really uh, love this movie. I mean, what's what's great about this movie? Have you ever seen an improv show, Devendra? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it takes you kind of behind the scenes of an improv troupe, and there's a lot of things that this movie does really well. Number one, it really captures the kind of familial atmosphere of uh, of one of those troops. Like you kind of see the the little rituals that they go through before they go on a show. Uh, you you see the relationship between all of them and kind of the tensions between them. Because they all usually come from vastly different life circumstances, mm-hmm. uh, and they usually don't just do the improv troupe as a full-time job. So they all have different jobs, or they don't have jobs depending on what the situation is. And so it really does a good job of like con- conveying to you what the relationships within this ensemble are. One thing that also comes with that is that you really see the difference in terms of lifestyle, in terms of mindset, between those that make it and those that don't make it. People pay five bucks uh, per head to get into a theater of like 200 people to see this improv show. And if uh, Saturday Night Live scouts are there, there's a, there's a fictional show in the universe of the movie called Weekend Live that is incredibly similar to Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. You know, if one of these people gets onto Saturday Night Live, it changes their entire life, you know, uh, assuming they make it past season one, right? They get movie deals. They, you know become producers um their lives become like vastly different and uh they 
get rich uh, a mm-hmm. lot of the time, you know, and they become a household name pretty much. Uh, and so the difference between someone who spends like Saturday nights at an improv troupe and someone who everyone in the country knows what your name is is incredibly vast. And that tension of like being one of the haves and have-nots or one of the people who make it and don't make it is central to this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's just rendered really beautifully. And you know, despite all the craziness going on, you really get a feel for how close uh, the bonds of theater are in these people. Like, like when you are in an improv troupe or when you perform at all with people, it forms these really indelible connections. And uh, that comes through really nicely. Uh, mm-hmm. So I really like this movie. Don't I've, think I've twice. been looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah. Need to see it. Yeah. I it, think- also, it also seems like a good exploration too of any like creative field. Like when you're in your 20s and early 30s, like trying to break into something, anything, right? And then somebody does it. And then, oh, what, what does that mean for the rest of you, right? Are you not working as hard? Are you a failure at life? Uh, I think it's really great because it's you know it's also about people who are in their 30s and still in this improv troupe, right? right they're largely right. in their 30s and they're trying to figure out like where is my life going? Like, uh, mm-hmm. is this improv troupe going to become a real thing? Is this going to lead me to where I want it to go? And I think those are questions you and I have you know, faced uh, mm-hmm. in our recent past, Devendra, about like where our lives are going. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I, I think it brought out a lot of questions that I really enjoyed. I think the only downside of this movie is that. The movie does a really good job. Like, there's six uh, central characters, and I think it does a really good job of juggling each of their plot lines. Uh, and the only thing that I didn't like about the movie is I kind of wanted more at the end. I wanted more resolution or details about what happened to these characters because I came to care mm-hmm. very much about the characters. And as a result of uh, how many characters there are uh, and how short the movie is, the movie isn't able to give them each uh, a resolution that was as detailed as I would have liked. But other than that, I mean, that's a very minor nit. Uh, the yeah. movie is very enjoyable um, and I, I think really captures a lot of elements of the creative life really well. So that's Don't Think Twice. It's written and directed by Mike Berbiglia and uh, it's out in limited release right now. I'd recommend you go check it out. I also saw another movie this week called Author, the J.T. Leroy story. Now, does the name J.T. Leroy mean anything to you, Divinger Hardwar? Very little. I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I'm going to read the plot of sermon from IMDb of author of the J.T. Leroy story. The story behind literary persona J.T. Leroy, the fictional writer created by American author Laura Albert. So uh, mm-hmm. J.T. Leroy was a, a literary it kid uh, who had written some books that received worldwide acclaim. Uh, Gus Van Sant was going to make movies like a movie based on one of the books. Uh, there, there was all this talk about how brilliant this author, J.T. Leroy, was. Uh, and in 2005, 2006 or so, it became uh, public that J.T. Leroy was not only not uh, a male, but that he was not actually a real person. He was a fictional persona that had been invented by a woman named Laura Albert. This movie, author the J.T. Leroy story takes you behind all the events that happened from J.T. Leroy's uh, brilliant and stunning rise uh, to his ignominious fall from grace uh, in the publishing world because it was revealed that the whole thing was a fiction. Uh, I thought the movie was very 
grippingly told, and uh, it's incredibly sympathetic to Laura Albert, the woman who uh, invented <laughs> J.T. Leroy. Was there like a controversy around her doing this? Yes, it was. Uh, it was incredibly controversial because mm-hmm. J.T. Leroy's uh, stories. Uh, they were sort of sold as fiction. Like if you look at the book jacket, it says fiction on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was like a heavy implication that J.T. Leroy had actually been through a lot of the things that he wrote about, uh, including like being uh, you know the son of a mother who worked as a tr- truck stop prostitute and some and being a person who had. Uh, been afflicted with AIDS. You know what I mean? Like all these things that mm-hmm. like he had supposedly gone through uh, that people like w- their hearts went out to this person who had been through these awful things. And they're like, wow, this is kind of a rags to riches story of this child who went through unspeakable horrors, uh, who then became a brilliant writer and then went on to great acclaim and success in the publishing world. Uh, everyone was kind of rooting for this person. Right. And they thought that mm-hmm. they were a brilliant person. Uh, so when it came out that, they were completely a fiction uh, and that it was invented by a 40-year-old woman, uh, people were pretty pissed uh, and they felt betrayed and they felt like this woman ha- had cashed in not only on like inventing a fictional person but like using this tragedy uh, that, was this backstor- uh, that was this person's backstory to her advantage to sell books and achieve fame. Uh, so it was pretty controversial from wh- at least from what I can tell from the movie. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought the movie was very absorbing. It was uh, very exciting and gripping. Uh, and I think the big downside is I think it is way too sympathetic to the author, Laura Albert, because you have a situation where uh, a lot of the movie is told using audio tape. Like apparently the movie implies that Laura Albert had recorded hundreds of her conversations with famous people, Billy Corgan, uh, David Milch, Gus Van Sant, like all these people, like you see uh, video ta- uh, I'm sorry, audio tapes playing and it has these conversations that she's apparently recorded. Uh, and so it recounts a lot of interactions that she's had through these audio tapes. And these people stuck up for her. Like they mm-hmm. were like, hey, uh, they called JT Leroy while she, she, was, she was impersonating JT Leroy, right, on the phone. Uh, and so they, they would call JT Leroy and leave a message saying, hey, I saw this article in the New York Times about how uh, you're not a real person. Well, that's complete bullshit. Like, I'm going to defend the, your actual <laughs> existence. And these are famous people, people like you and I know, uh, you know, from reading about them or seeing them in the news. Uh, and that side of the story, like those people's betrayal is very uh, marginalized in the film. Like those people, the people who basically were hurt by the J.T. Leroy story, those people mm-hmm. don't get much of a say in the film. And that is a huge disappointment. Uh, but beyond that, uh, the movie is, is uh, really interesting and uh, a very fascinating look at how one person could rise to fame in, in the literary world. It actually kind of reminded me of My Kid Could Paint That, actually, um, uh-huh. if you've seen that film. Uh, about how someone could you know, be a star in the art world uh, on a foundation that may not be super strong. Same thing here. It's like you're, you're kind of fascinated that like, all these people are buying into the J.T. Leroy story uh, and how that happens and how a myth is created 
really fascinating stuff. So that's author the JT Leroy story. It's directed by Jeff Feuerzeig, um, produced by Brett Ratner, actually. Uh, and uh, huh. I think that it's actually a pretty interesting movie. It's being released by Amazon Studios. It'll be out in limited release uh, this month in September. And I assume that it will eventually be out in, uh, on Amazon Prime now for, for your home viewing pleasure. So author the JT Leroy story, that is what I have been watching this week. So uh, that's all we've got for what we've been watching. Uh, let's move on. Before we do that, though, you know, Devendra, we are really missing our buddy Jeff here on uh, the podcast today. And I saw a tweet that he sent out that really tickled me. Mm-hmm. Uh, last night he sent out a tweet, new baby introducing me to his friend, 4 a.m. We've never really <laughs> been acquainted, but something tells me we will be hanging out a lot now. Uh, it sounds like Jeff, as a new father is not getting a lot of sleep, Devendra. Mm. Sounds like it's, he's having difficulty getting some shut-eye. And when you have difficulty getting some shut-eye, you know, one thing that really helps with that, it's a really comfortable mattress. Uh, and fortunately for Slash Filmcast listeners, we have an awesome offer from someone who makes really comfortable mattresses, Casper. At casper.com slash filmcast, use promo code filmcast. Um, Casper creates a perfect mattress sold directly to consumers, eliminating commission-driven inflated prices. Its award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house and has a sleek design and is delivered in a small uh, how-do-they-do-that size box. Now, Devendra, you have uh, opened up a Casper mattress in your house before. It's a pretty yes. cool experience, is it not? It's great. It just uh, yeah, kind of expands very quickly out of yeah. nothing. It, yeah. it comes in a box. You're like, how could they possibly fit a mattress in there, A, and B, a comfortable one? Uh, mm-hmm. But they did it, right? It, it's like vacuum sealed. You cut open the box. You cut open the bag, and boom, it expands, and it's there. Super easy uh, delivery. And uh, it's a super comfortable mattress. You and I have both slept on a Casper mattress, right, Devendra? Oh, yeah. Uh, I've been using one for years. So I still – I s- like people ask me sometimes – You know, I have people ping me uh, who mm-hmm. listen to the Slash Filmcast and they say, hey, Dave, I'm about to buy a mattress. Should I actually buy a Casper mattress? Because I know you advertise them on the Slash Filmcast. Yes. I, David Chen, actually sleep on a Casper mattress. That is not a lie. I'm not just saying that for this ad read. I actually sleep on a Casper mm-hmm. mattress, and I find it incredibly comfortable, and uh, I really enjoy not just the mattress, but also the service that provides it. Like, they're just, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's super convenient the way they deliver it, and uh, they do uh, free delivery and free returns with a 100 night home trial. So, if you Pretty. don't love it, they'll pick it up, they'll refund you everything. They understand the importance of sleeping on a mattress before you commit, which is not even something you could do at the store. So, not only sure. yeah. is it uh, more convenient than going to the store, but you get a better value because you can actually try it out before you commit to uh, to buying it. So, have you, have you ever tried buying a real mattress like a like at a normal mattress store? It sucks. And it like, is, how do you get it home? You have to you have to like zip car or rent a U-Haul right. or something just to get even it home. Even if they deliver, like their deliveries aren't great. Like it's it's the weird. It's like going to a U used car or car sales lot trying to get one of those older mattresses and yes. uh, it's it's a terrible experience and they're so much more expensive and feel worse yeah uh, mattresses can often cost well over fifteen hundred dollars mm-hmm. but casper mattresses cost five hundred dollars for a twin size mattress seven fifty for a full eight fifty for a queen and nine fifty for a king if you go to casper.com slash filmcast and use promo code filmcast uh you can get fifty dollars towards any mattress purchase so i hope that jeff is sleeping on a casper getting some good shut eye uh because i think he's gonna need it over the uh-huh. 
uh-huh. course of the next. Uh, they should make uh, like little baby crib mattresses too. <laughs> I, Casper is making dog. They're making uh, dog beds now. now. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Beds, so yeah. they're they're expanding outward. Maybe they'll make uh, uh, you know baby Casper mattresses. I wouldn't, one day. Be, I wouldn't we'll be surprised. Like the great thing about Casper is it feels even better than anything IKEA has. Like I was mattress shopping for a while a couple of years ago, and IKEA's things are pretty much the same price and don't feel as good. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, Casper.com slash Filmcast. Use promo code Filmcast. uh, And we appreciate Casper uh, sponsoring us for this episode. Let's get to our review of The Light Between Oceans. Janus, my island, my life, Isabel, my love. Every day we spend together. One day, there came a sudden cry. For many years, we journeyed on. You have a very lovely daughter. Excuse me. That was from the trailer of The Light Between Oceans, the newest film by uh, writer-director Derek C. in France. Uh, it was based off a novel by M.L. Stedman. And uh, I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. I will say, like, when I saw the movie, I had no idea what the movie is going to be about. <laughs> so we will give away things that happened in the first third of this film. The trailer. Um, I think it's mostly there. Yeah. Uh, well, the trailer, like, gives almost everything away, in my opinion. So, like, it gives away, like, last act developments that I would eh, prefer not yeah. to talk about. Um, but we will give away things that happen in the opening of this film. Uh, and the plot summary from IMDb is a lighthouse keeper and his wife, living off the coast of Western Australia, raise a baby they rescue from an adrift rowboat. This movie stars uh, Michael Fassbender, Alicia Vikander, and Rachel Weisz. Uh, and is the fourth film by writer-director uh, Derek C. in France. I have really enjoyed his other films, uh, specifically Blue Valentine and The Place Beyond the Pines. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blue Valentine, as we discussed on the slash filmcast, probably one of my favorite films of all time. Heartbreaking movie. That's a brutal uh, movie. Yeah, yeah. And, and he is great at these kind of very like realistic, you know, like the, the emotions he captures, the interactions he captures between people always feel to me very true to life. I think for Blue Valentine, there's a story that he made made Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams live in a house together for a month using <laughs> the salaries that they would have made in that oh, situation man. just to kind of get a sense of what life would have been like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that relationship really comes uh, to life on screen. Uh, and so, like, that gives you a sense of how committed he is to making sure these things are authentic. I think it's a great job in general. Um, so let me ask you, do you feel like he did a good job here with The Light Between Oceans? Did you buy the central <laughs> relationship between Michael Fassbender and Alicia Vikander's characters? Oh, I definitely did. Like, you could you could see that there's a real connection between them. And I think uh, I'm not too into, like, celebrity gossip, but they did uh, get together as a couple uh, during the filming of this movie. And, uh, yeah, and they seem like still together. They seem like they're in a pretty committed relationship. But I definitely bought this core relationship for sure. Uh, and... What did you think of the movie overall, Devendra? Like, did you feel like uh, mm-hmm. this lived up to your expectations of a Derek C. in France film? I think so. And honestly, it doesn't even feel uh, – I think the big problem with uh, Blue Velvet for me – Blue Valentine. Is, uh, not Blue Valentine, not Blue Velvet. Very but uh, that movie, I, I really like how it approached that relationship and the drama of it and everything. But it also felt a little cold. It's kind of a detached film. And this one – 
you get a sense of that, but I think this one is also a little warmer and a little more romantic, and you get like I don't know, you get a better sense of like what's going on between these people, and yeah, it's not this just this is a romantic period drama yes. of the kind this that they rarely melodrama. make that they rarely yeah. make anymore. You know, they yeah, don't, they don't make it's it that a often. straight up melodrama. It is yeah. like reminds me of like uh, uh, one of my favorite books is Ethan Frome, right? And something like that, a movie, a, a book that's just like very dramatic, very like grand in what it's trying to do, but also like heartbreaking at the same time. And yeah, it, it reminds me of those older things uh, that we used to see, those older types of novels. We don't see them as much in movies. And honestly, I have to say, uh, sometimes a, a, a straight up melodrama is a good thing. Like it's just like a refreshing thing to see, uh, a nice sweeping story, makes you feel things. <laughs> Um, it, it just feels so traditional in a way that I really enjoyed it. And this movie is gorgeous. Just so yeah. damn good. I bought the relationship. Uh, and even though some elements of it felt predictable, I didn't feel like this movie was laying too heavily on like the misery of it. Uh, you didn't I, feel like it ventured into misery porn too yes. much. Yeah. Which I thought, uh, blue, I thought it walked a very, sort of did. I thought yeah. it walked a very fine line. I thought it was very close to being yeah. mystery porn, but th- I don't think it quite ventured into it. It definitely I, didn't get there at the end, and we'll talk. We could talk more about that in spoilers. In terms, com- compared to something like uh, what we're seeing from like Lars von Trier, uh, you know, typically, uh, I, I always go back to Dancer in the Dark because I think I hate that movie. I think I hate the way it portrays that drama and everything, and to end in the most like not just heartbreaking, but in like the gut wrenching like the it's an ending that feels terrible just to be terrible and this movie just definitely doesn't give you that right uh this movie could this movie light between oceans could be described as manipulative uh in some ways but i you know i i really am tempted to describe it as manipulative but i never quite got there because the performances are so good uh michael fassbender and alicia vikander they are giving their all in this right like they show you they they bear their soul they bleed for these performances and uh i think it's it's remarkable what they're able to do. Mm-hmm. Cinematography is amazing, like you said. Everything here is bigger than uh, Derek C. and Francis' previous films. The cinematography, the scope, uh, the vistas, the emotions, the tragedy, everything mm-hmm. is bigger. Well, he's out of America, too, because yeah. Place Beyond the Pines, I think, was that was like upstate New York. So it was a side of America you don't normally get to see, but it was still very, very American in what they were doing. This movie and was he- shot in New Zealand, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, and... The place Janice Lighthouse, that, that is not a real location. Uh, it is a fictional location. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's it looks amazing. Uh, I think the movie is overall quite good uh, just because of yeah, the performances. Yeah. And uh, I, I bought the relationship as well. I think the beginning of the relationship, I was a little bit skeptical. I was like, is this how things happened back then? Like, <laughs> people just fell in love by writing letters to each other. Is that writing. How, I mean, it is was that like one book. That's probably how it worked. I remember like Atonement, right? The, uh, the Joe Wright film. And uh, that's also based on a novel. And that's also like a very big flowery romance thing that is kind of heartbreaking too. Um, you know, th- things were different. You had yeah. to court people in a way. And this, uh, it was also kind of refreshing too, because it seems like Alicia Vikander's character was the one that was like actively courting this dude. So that right. was kind of a nice change of pace. It, what what is reminds- fascinating about this movie mm-hmm. is it presents a very marked contrast in the courtship process from uh, modern day, you know, OkCupid and Tinder apps, <laughs> right? In the sense that mm-hmm. modern day, it's like you're flipping through. 
you're flipping through like uh, a, a binder or something with all these characteristics, and you can kind of just choose like, oh, um, this person doesn't like the wire. Well, then forget about it. You know. But in <laughs> back then, it's the dilemma you, of choice or whatever. Yeah, there, the paradox of choice. Yeah, back then, you didn't have that many choices. And right. uh, and if you see Michael Fassbender walking by, you're like, oh, I, I gotta get that dude. <laughs> I, yeah, like, got to lock that down now because it's going to be yes. a while before uh, a Michael Fassbender-esque uh, hunk uh, is in my 30-mile vicinity again. Right. Uh, and they're, and, they're in, like, because uh, they're in, like, a port town, too, yeah, that also seems removed from everything else. They're quite, yeah, it feels quite remote. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, anyway, they, like, I understand the courtship process was different back then and, like, people often – would get married and then fall in love versus the mm-hmm. other way around. And uh, so sure. I, I thought that was actually like a, a very refreshing change from how mm-hmm. we see uh, romance depicted on screen these days. That the romance is just kind of accepted. Like mm-hmm. you just, you just kind of like, okay, these people courted and they're in love. And then now we have the rest of the movie to show uh, the depths of their love, right? And like, I think it does kind of build in an interesting way too, because both of them are. Um, Dealing with like the after effects of, uh, I think it's uh, the First World War. Right. And um, like Fastbender's character was a soldier who has seen horrific things. Uh, Vikander's done, done character. Done horrific things, probably. Yeah. 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 Done horrific things. Like, you could, I love the beginning of the film where he is just like on the island on his own, dealing with, you know, his own inner demons. And uh, if there's like one thing Michael Fassbender can do, it is like show conflict in his face and that's something he's done again and again even as Magneto in the X-Men like he is just so good at that uh, and Alicia Vikander's character you know she's dealing yeah, let, with let the me, loss of her brother as well so there's some yeah, interesting things they're, they're coming together because of uh, uh, their own loss I think let me say something else about uh, mm-hmm. Michael Fassbender like there's many shots of the film many mm-hmm. shots that's just a stationary or very slowly moving shot of his face and he's not saying anything and it's just like, what is he thinking? You know, what is the conflict that's roiling inside him? Yeah. And mm-hmm. you can read that conflict on his face. I mean, I don't know what he was actually thinking. I don't know how he actually got there. But his face is very expressive. And it reminded me of Steve Jobs, the movie. Yes. When yes. during Act Two, there was uh, kind of a shot of Steve Jobs just looking at the camera. And I was listening mm-hmm. to the commentary of Steve Jobs, and they were saying, like, we just shot, like, ten minutes of Michael Fassbender <laughs> looking at the camera. And then at various points in Act 2 of Steve Jobs, they would just cut to that shot yes. randomly. And it would be a way of showing you Steve Jobs' state of mind in that moment. Uh, and that's, that's, like, how expressive Michael Fassbender's face is, is you can just cut to it at random moments – through an like a very intense scene, and uh, and it will deliver the emotional impact that you want it to. And mm-hmm. uh, I think he certainly shows that power in this film. This is a, this is a great acting showcase for both him and Alicia Vikander, uh, and shows why they both are worthy of Oscars. They've both been nominated. Alicia Vikander actually won. Um, so I think it's uh, it, it, like for for those reasons alone, for seeing those performances, seeing them uh, on screen in this relationship, it's it's worth checking out the movie. Um, I wanted to get the spoilers of you, Devendra. Anything else sure. we want to talk about before well, we get there? Well, uh, Rachel Weiss too. Like here, I, she plays uh, – this movie just I think casts uh, these roles uh, kind of perfectly because Rachel Weiss is playing a woman who's completely distraught and whose life has been you know, ruined because of uh, the, this accident that she went through. 
uh, I guess we'll say more in spoilers, but I think she she was fantastic. Like, she's this does shows, a good job. She doesn't. She's mm-hmm. not given that much to do, but she makes yeah. a lot out of what she's been given, and I think that's for sure. uh, That's great. So good casting, like really elevates melodrama. I think, definitely, and it definitely shows here. Let's get to spoilers right now for the light between oceans. Now you're looking for the secret. Trying to see this coming. No, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret. You want to be fooled. Devinger, did you know the? Pl- did you see the trailer for this movie going in? I saw the trailer, so I knew the basic idea. But uh, yeah, I didn't know. You didn't like, know about honestly, the the miscarriages. I'm guessing. I right? didn't know about the miscarriages. I didn't know like the setup for their relationship and everything. I thought like, oh, it'd be husband and wife moving to the lighthouse. But it takes a while before Alicia Vikander's character is there. Yeah, so, it takes like you're like an hour into the movie before the premise of the plot even reveals itself. Yes, I think. yeah. Um, so I I kind of liked all that. But the what I love about this movie is that it is it's giving you extraordinary choices for these you know normal people to have to decide. And I think it's you can at least understand their thought process, right? They're they're in crazy circumstances. Um, Vikander's character is distraught um, and yeah, in grief. That, that's what know, the, that's what's so good about the movie is that scene when she's begging Michael Fassbender to keep the baby. Uh, you know, yeah. you, you you kind of put yourself in that situation. Like, what mm-hmm. would you do in that situation? There's no mm-hmm. easy answer. Right. You're there to take care of your wife and you want to do what she wants. And honestly, she makes a good point, too, is that nobody like no state in their right mind would allow, you know, somebody to adopt a kid to come stay on this random remote island. Right. Uh, so so yeah. maybe the kid like what she couldn't have predicted was that the baby that they adopted actually had a really rich family waiting for mm-hmm. her, uh, her mm-hmm. back at home. Uh, and so. That is a very unfortunate turn of events, and actually, you know, that's that's the the part at which uh, a movie like this can feel like it turns manipulative. Is if, if it feels like it's simply inflicting yes. these negative life events on these people just yes. to make the audience feel bad, and these people run into negative development after negative development, two miscarriages. They find the baby, they adopt it, they raise it, and then uh, find out that hey, the baby actually belongs to this rich family who themselves are going through their own kind of yeah. tragic situation uh that edges to the to the part of where it feels like oh like maybe you're just kind of torturing these people maybe mm-hmm. this is kind of misery porn a little bit yeah uh, never quite got there for me but it definitely came pretty close if, if this were a different movie like fastbender would be like put to execution or something right or something really off uh would happen maybe maybe the kid like there's a scene where the kid gets lost again because she's trying to get back to the lighthouse. And I think if certain other people had done this too, like that would have been another situation to like you know, off the kid or something. They could if have certain other people had made the film, you mean? Yeah, certain if, other people. If, if, uh, <laughs> I'm looking at you, Lars von Trier. Um, <laughs> yeah, like that's the sort of thing. Like I don't think it reaches that point. It definitely tugs at your heartstrings. It makes you feel for these characters and what they're going through. Uh, but I think even at the very end, like I think it, it reaches the best the best possible outcome it could for this for all the events that have happened right so they 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 don't he doesn't go to jail for the rest of his life he doesn't get executed um uh, he was know, never going to he was never going to get executed cuz the kid just the kid yeah, lived yeah. he was going to go away for quite a long time right, is what right, the punishment right. was but i really liked that message at the end uh, i i wish mm-hmm. we had gotten more about her relationship with uh, – I feel like in the book we probably had more about Rachel Weisz's relationship with her husband and the yes, idea that yeah. forgiveness is such a central 
element of his life, you know, and that mm-hmm. that motivates her to forgive. And that's a very moving decision. I wish we had gotten a little bit more build up to that, mm-hmm. um, other than just like her remembering this one memory, you know, like that was the motivation for her. Um, but the idea that, yeah, like forgiveness is very powerful and like everyone's just trying to do their best in this crazy world. They're just yeah. trying to find love. They're just trying to find happiness. And, uh, and we shouldn't necessarily like be incredibly angry about that. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, like, well, I, I want to talk to you briefly about the ev- epilogue later, but I just want to say like, it's rare to see uh, a miscarriage happen on screen. Uh, yeah, in in yeah. theaters, it's it's apparently much more common on television. Like miscarriage as a trope on on television is uh, much more frequent, I think, from uh, my recollection and from what I've been told. But it's also it doesn't happen like you you don't stay on the person usually when it happens to you. It's usually a thing it usually that happens, happens like, like off screen, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Alicia Vikander has to perform two scenes mm-hmm. where she's basically having a miscarriage in this film, and. You know, the first one is pretty over the top uh, because she's venturing out in the rain yeah. and then, like, it, it looks insane what's going on. Have, and, a, have a system, dude. Yeah. Like, maybe your wife yeah, has a candle at a Yeah, have some kind of, yeah. like, light system or a smoke, you know, some, <laughs> some kind of system to, like, in case something goes wrong. Right. But you um, can understand why they may not have thought of that. Yeah. The weather effects were a little bit, like, <laughs> they're so crazy that it kind of mm-hmm. almost distracts from her performance in that scene when she's, like, mm-hmm. just very uncomfortable looking out the window. The second miscarriage scene, however, is... Uh, heartbreaking because yeah. you see her go through every single emotion like where it's like oh it's painful and she's like afraid of what's happening but she doesn't want to show that she's afraid and then there's a moment when she thinks like oh maybe it's okay like it's okay like everything's gonna be fine and then it's not okay and then like Michael Fassbender is like completely helpless yeah, yeah. what what can I do he yeah. can't do anything oh, it is it is so yeah. heartbreaking and painful to watch and uh, it's it's remarkable. You don't see something like that in the movies very often. Uh, and miscarriage is a very common event in our mm-hmm. society. And people don't we do, really like, talk about it. We know today more that it's more common than most people say. But yeah, they don't talk about it. They don't talk about it. They don't show it. Uh, and so I think the movie is bold for, for being willing to like acknowledge the psychic trauma that something like this uh, mm-hmm. can have on people. Like, you know, I have friends who've had miscarriages. It is incredibly painful uh, to go through. And so you get why Michael Fassbender uh, would do what he does in the yeah. movie, right? And, it's, and just, they're yeah. both pushed to extraordinary circumstances. And honestly, like, they they don't know what this kid has in terms of family. And their right. job is to save the kid. And I love how at the end, that's really what it comes down to, right? Rachel Weisz's character is angry about everything that happened. But at the end of the day, they they did save her and took care of her. And that's really all a parent could ask for sometimes. Right. I, I did want to point out just a couple uh, random things about the ending. Number one, Rachel Weiss goes to Alicia Vikander and says, hey, mm-hmm. like you sold out – like your, your husband made you do everything. So you can have him back – you can have the kid back if uh, – once he goes away to jail, right? Right. But then like later, Rachel Weiss – like firstly, Alicia Vikander is so moved – by Michael Fassbender's gesture that she then says, like, no, I got in tr- – like, I deserve punishment as well. And she confesses to the crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, like, a good moment in the movie because she's, like, hated him for, you know, so long that mm-hmm. that for her to come back to him, I, I, I was very moved by that. Uh, but then – uh, Rachel Weiss decides to keep the kid anyway, you know, so like mm-hmm. because, yeah, 
these this couple basically brainwashed Rachel Weisz's child, <laughs> and and you can like undo that brainwashing over time. So I, I never thought that her like it was going to be really difficult always. Right. But I never thought that uh, Rachel Weisz should just give up. You know what I mean? That well, eventually over time, uh, over it was time, going to like. Yeah. That one scene where Vic Hender goes into the restaurant or store right. and the kid runs to her, you know, and away from Rachel Weiss's character. Like that, you could tell, like, she's trying to love this child and the child just doesn't quite know how to handle that because, yeah, it, it doesn't acknowledge that she's her natural mother or anything. Right, right, right. But I, yeah. I just knew that, like, like imagine mm-hmm. if this happened in real life, you know, yes, mm-hmm. the kid would think, like, oh, you're not my real mommy and daddy. But then, like, over time, that would just... It, yeah, it would probably it be okay. It, you'd, like you'd figure it out. I mean, I know that doesn't happen all the time. I know there's like many adoptions that end painfully, mm-hmm. but it's at least worth trying over the course of like however many years. Yeah, and so but I felt she, like, she, I mean, it didn't feel like she was giving up. It was more like she was doing what was in the best interest. Right, of the right. Kid. No, yeah. that's fair enough. That's fair enough. But then yeah. you know, I, I was wondering like, okay, if Alicia Vikander hadn't confessed, mm-hmm. would Rachel Weisz have still given up the child? Like uh, that wasn't clear to me. Uh, and then mm-hmm. there's a scene where Michael Fassbender's like at jail. He's facing a lot of jail time. Mm-hmm. And all I could think of was Michael Fassbender. Is Always freaking, in prison. His freaking yeah. character has freaking lived in a freaking desert island for like yeah. six months. Like he he voluntarily chose the desert island life for himself. Mm-hmm. Jail has nothing on Michael Fassbender. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, the, and I, I appreciated the idea that like Michael Fassbender is willing to take one for the team and absorb a jail sentence, mm-hmm. and that that completely fits in with his character because. Dude, this dude chose like like he chose sol- yeah. basically solitary confinement. That's what he wants willingly. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> so he's okay with uh, with that. By the way, Michael Fassbender, just in general, his characters sure do get locked up a lot. <laughs> you know, we were we were first. Uh, what was it uh, that uh, the the movie, the Irish prison movie, Hunger, Hunger, yeah, but also. Uh, in X Men, I, I feel a couple of times Magneto was imprisoned, or his Magneto was imprisoned. So just uh, it's kind of kind of a thing. I, he he does really well with that conflict while behind bars. Yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. totally understood that he's willing to like absorb that punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of which, uh, I really like the opening scene of the film, uh, which yeah. is a very slow paced uh, conversation of uh, Michael Fassbender's character, Tom Sherborne, accepting this lighthouse post and and. With very few words, it conveys a lot. This guy has seen some shit, yep. and uh, a lighthouse job in the middle of nowhere would be a break for him. And you even know? then, like you, you can get a sense too, like the person who used to have this job that something weird had happened there too, and that didn't daunt him either. Right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, you'd probably go like pre-internet. Yes. You know, <laughs> being on a lighthouse by yourself with no one else. <laughs> Uh, it would be nuts. Like I can't imagine how anyone. That's did how that. The Shining starts. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, The Shining. He even had a wife and kid. So yep. it's like yep. imagine not having a wife and kid to like keep you company. It's just you. Uh, I would be terrified because like if something went like if you fell and you know broke your leg or something like mm-hmm. what would what would what you do? do? Yeah. yeah like, you just I, apparently he had you maybe just he had the telegraph. I think right. he had a way to signal the shore. Right. I think I think it was telegraph. Um, but yeah, what what would you do? It reminds me of. Uh, uh, did you play Firewatch, that game? Never played it, but I've heard great it's, things about it. It's amazing. But also the idea that, yeah, you could have this job, right, where you're you're just supposed to be in this one place for months and you you have barely any communication with anybody else. That is – it's such a weird – I don't know. So It's a weird thing to accept. And here it's even worse. Yeah. 
any other? Oh, let's talk about the epilogue. The yes. So I have not been a fan of these Derek C and Francis epilogues. Like mm-hmm. I did not, I did not like the epilogue for Place Beyond the Pines. Um, I thought that was a little much. I yeah. thought, yeah, I thought, I thought that in Place Beyond the Pines, his uh, his reach exceeded his grasp. I, mm-hmm. I understood what he was trying to do. He's trying to tell a story about like masculinity through the generations and how the sins of the father passed to the son, and all those kinds of big sweeping things that I don't feel quite landed for me in that movie. Uh, and, you know, I think the end of this movie works a little bit better for me. Yes. Uh, yeah. In terms of the central theme of, like, redemption, redemption and atonement and forgiveness. The idea that, hey, um, these people can still have a relationship. You know, they can still be okay with each other, even though... Uh, Tom Sherborne and Isabel Graysmark, like they, they essentially committed a crime. You know, like mm-hmm. they kind of kidnapped this person. They, they were derelict in their duty, mm-hmm. and uh, and they didn't do the right thing. But that that's still okay because uh, they they tried to do their best for this this kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they basically did it out of their love for each other in a way too. So yeah, what uh, what kills me about the epilogue is that I don't think they had another kid. Or right. like even adopted or tried, and maybe they couldn't even adopt after. Right. This. So what we what we get yeah. from the epilogue is that uh, they didn't go to jail for the rest of their lives, and they mm-hmm. they lived out the rest of their lives peacefully and happily with each other. I did think it kind of sucked that Alicia Vikander's character basically dies off screen. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, well, you we see, get that one. Yeah, scene. you get that yeah. one shot, but I just it it felt like it kind of sucked. Uh, mm-hmm. Like this is a fictional story anyway. Uh, if you're gonna make a happy ending, why mm-hmm. make like a partially happy ending? Well, it's I guess it's a more given given what Cian France does, right? He he's always trying to push for realism, and right. and, and things in real life are messy. You know, they yeah, don't it's end a up messy. like wrapped up really nicely. So and the way it's filmed enough. too, it almost seems like the girl came pretty soon after Vikander's character died. So that that's even more like that's the sort of thing that really tugs at my heartstrings, right? The idea of like almost missing these connections and sometimes missing them like you know very closely or something yeah so anyway uh i thought it was a decent epilogue i thought the movie overall was pretty good um i've seen a lot of hate for this movie right have you seen like i've seen a lot of hate i also think um, uh rotten tomatoes right now for uh for comparison it is Mm -hmm. at uh what do you call it 60 percent. so that's pretty good not bad but not Mm -hmm. great i Uh, think the appetite for melodrama these days isn't just not quite there too like you have to accept what this movie is trying to do and how it's trying to do it and, and it's very looking, earnest and kind yeah. of over the t- uh, kind of over the top and plot it twisty it's in soap some opera yeah it's yeah. very soap opera like so i think you have to be on board with that mm-hmm. right and if you're if not you're looking for like blue valentine again this is not that but i actually think i i'd rather see him flex his you know skills in different ways rather than repeat uh, the really like harsh emotional realism he was going for originally. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm bummed that uh, this movie didn't do that well at the box office this weekend, but hopefully it, it'll do better on video on demand and find an audience mm-hmm. there. So mm-hmm. that's our review of The Light Between Oceans, and that's going to wrap it up for us today on this slightly abridged version of the Slash Filmcast. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be reviewing next week. In the meantime, Devendra, where can you find more of your work on the internet this week? So you can find me at, at Devendra on Twitter, and I write about tech at Engadget.com, and we're also doing the podcast again there, so check that out. Find me at DaveChen.me. Find my film, The Primary Instinct, at theprimaryinstinct.com, and also uh, at uh, Hulu, which you can watch The Primary Instinct on there for free. Also, uh, my film, The Primary Instinct, will be at the South Dakota Film Festival. 
this year. So if nice. you are in South Dakota, if you're one of our South Dakota listeners, uh, check out the Primary Instinct. That um, are you are you going to travel for that day? I don't think I can make it, but uh, I'm pretty sure Stephen Tobolowsky is going to be there. So oh, nice. that is worth uh, checking out if you are in the area. Uh, find more episodes of our podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us. Let us know your slash film court dilemmas uh, or what you thought of uh, Light Between Oceans at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Next week, we're going to be reviewing Clint Eastwood's newest film, Sully. I've heard great performance from Tom Hanks. Uh, the movie itself might not be as good as that performance, but we will right. decide here on the Slash Filmcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next week. He watched the movies. 